0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Asher Orkaby about his new book, Beyond the Arab Cold War, The International History of the Yemen Civil War, 1962-1968. Asher, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Uh, so right now, I'm a postdoctoral fellow. I'm postdoctoral is Basically, the reward given to graduate students who've toiled through five plus years of graduate school, then you get to explore academia beyond just your dissertation. So I've been enjoying that. Uh, the Meanwhile, I'm still here at Harvard, uh, the nearest through languages department. And uh, at the same time, I'm also lecturing and teaching in Middle East history.
0: What was it that led you to write this uh, book? So uh,
1: as, you can, uh, as you may tell from my last name, uh, it's, it's actually Yemeni last name. Is a small little village in southern Yemen called Orkab, uh, and that village is where my family has its origin. So uh, that, that's something that I grew up with. I grew up with Yemen in the household, and I grew up with uh, that identity, that cultural identity as a Yemeni, and having that identity then drew me towards uh, my real love, which was history. And putting the two together, there was a period of time in Yemeni history during the 1960s that was not sufficiently covered. Uh, and for the most part, was dismissed as uh, something uh, is something uh, of a much larger scale beyond the borders of Yemen. And what I wanted to do was bring the light, shine the light back on Yemen. Is something uh, that both of, of a family history and also just uh, a love of the uh, of the history in the Cold War era, which uh, drove me towards this specific topic uh, and Yemen in general.
0: It's a little surprising to learn that this subject has really gone so understudied for so long, because uh, as you explained at the beginning of it, it really is this important regional event that draws in a lot of major players. You, I want to begin by talking a bit about what you, uh, what you call the Arab Cold War. Could you explain what that was and how it related to the larger Cold War that was taking place during the 1950s and 1960s? So I think your, your first and second question
1: uh, both can be answered with, uh, with the same train of thought. And that uh, the reason this subject hasn't been studied uh, at great length is because the focus has been on uh, either the Cold War, so you have this, this bipolar conflict between the US and the Soviet Union, which essentially divides the world into two. Now, uh, it could be practically divide the worlds into two, like in, in Vietnam or divide the world into two in terms of ideologically. That everything that happened during the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s was all a manifestation of the Cold War. And nothing else that happened uh, happened in and of itself, but really was just a consequence of this bipolar conflict. Now that's the old way of looking at Cold War history, is that the U.S. and the Soviet Union dominated world. World events, but uh, what you uncover is that uh, through research, and especially through research in non US and non Russian language sources, is you find that uh, in fact there were extenuating circumstances within local and regional conflicts that were the actual causes and drivers of conflict, not US and Soviet intervention. Uh, so that's you know, really why uh, Yemen hasn't appeared on that uh, beyond that that, uh, that discussion, because we, the focus has been on those bipolar conflicts. In the Middle East, in addition to the Cold War, there's also been a, uh, a focus on this Arab Cold War. And the Arab Cold War is something that began in the early 1950s between the Arab monarchies, which were led by Saudi Arabia at the time, and the Egyptian nationalist movements led by Egypt, and uh, the famed Egyptian president Gamal Abdel Nasser. Now, uh, very similar uh, to the global conflict, this Arab Cold War, which divided the Middle East between the monarchies and the Arab nationalists, was the way to explain everything that happened during the 1950s and 60s. It was made famous by, uh, well, it, it was uh, it was a book called The Arab Cold War, and this was really the the trope uh, that came out. The author of the Arab Cold War named Malcolm Kerr uh, it was really his, his single greatest contribution to Middle East history was the focus on the Arab Cold War. So what I argue in this book is that uh, Yemen was the driver of its own history rather than a manifestation of the Arab Cold War. Events in Yemen were uh, a result of uh, internal Yemeni politics and internal Yemeni revolutions. And only afterwards were the international powers brought in uh, to transpose their own global conflicts on the local conflict in Yemen. But the Yemen civil war and the revolution itself was a consequence of Yemen and was Yemeni rather than an Arab Cold War.
0: I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon those developments within Yemen itself and how they led to the 1962 coup, which starts the Yemen civil war.
1: Uh, So uh, Yemen uh, doesn't receive the recognition that is due to it in terms of uh, when we look at the post-colonial countries, the first real true post-colonial country in the Middle East was Yemen. Uh, This is already before the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire as early as some dated to 1908, even a few years afterwards. Uh, Imam Yahya, who was part of the Mutawakil uh, family, the Hamid ad din family in Yemen, uh, essentially took over the country, north Yemen, uh, took over the country from the, the disintegrating Ottoman Empire and declared the first independent Arab state. Uh, and this, uh, in, uh, Imam Yahya in, him, himself was extremely popular, uh, but his, uh, his son, Ahmad, made a... Uh, well, a fatal decision to, to send a group of of uh, Yemenis outside of the country. It was an isolated country, uh, purposely isolated geographically and ideologically, to send a group called the Famous 40. Uh, now, this group was, uh, was unique because it was one of the only group of Yemeni students uh, sent outside by the Yemeni government to study in European, American, and uh, Middle Eastern universities in Egypt and uh, in Iraq and Lebanon. Uh, and then basically when they came back, they were an educated civil servant. The idea was that they should come in and modernize the military, which was the real focus. But they came in and brought these ideas of a modern nationalist Arab identity. And by bringing these these ideas back during the, the 1940s and later 1950s, uh, there was this nascent uh, Arab nationalist movement or Yemeni nationalist movement that uh, arose that initially wanted to topple this religious rule by the imam, but eventually expanded into something much, much larger. Uh, and that culminated uh, in 1962, in September of 1962, when Imam Ahmad's son, Muhammad al badr was overthrown by this Yemeni nationalist movement. But basically this idea of uh, a foreign educated group, they call them the famous 40 because it was 40 of them, but they were accompanied by hundreds of additional Yemenis who made their way through the southern uh, port of Aden uh, and made their way elsewhere. So you have all these international figures who uh, bring these modernist ideas to to Yemen in some way and create the idea of a modern nation state to replace this old imamate and this old imamate, which can stretch back a thousand of years, a thousand years according to some accounts, or at the very least until 19, uh, as early as nineteen oh eight. So the, the the actual nationalist movement was not something that was directed by Egypt or by any of the other powers, but it's really something that happened by uh, educated Yemenis coming into the country, looking at their imam, and deciding that they wanted something more, that they wanted something different.
0: One of the things I thought was very interesting was how you explained that those sentiments weren't just confined to the, the this, this, this famous 40, that instead you had even... Uh, uh, the uh, Yemeni leadership was aspiring to something more. And so, they, as you explained, they were reaching out to the uh, Soviet Union especially and, and seeking to try to bring Yemen uh, into the, 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 this uh, modern, industrialized, uh, if you will, globalized world.
1: So, you know, there's actually a very interesting case over here where uh, Muhammad al-Badr, who's Imam Ahmad's uh, son, and he's the crown prince. He's next in line to take over the imamate. Uh, but uh, he's, he's the rebellious son, is, is, uh, to use the cliché term. Uh, and he goes to Egypt to visit some of these famous 40, to visit some of these students studying abroad. You can imagine a university professor kind of going abroad to look at his students studying abroad, check on their success. And he gathers together in this, uh, this group of, of, of students abroad and he's completely enthralled by the idea of Arab nationalism. So here is the crown prince, the inheritor, to one of the most isolationist and uh, backwards leadership in countries in the world. Uh, and he's looking at this modern nationalist Arab movement, and he's saying, I want this. I want to bring this to Yemen. And uh, he was later dubbed the Red Prince. Uh, Muhammad al-Badr was dubbed the Red Prince, because uh, not, not only did he travel to Cairo and befriend Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt, and the leader of the Arab nationalist movements. But he also was the first Arab leader to go to Moscow and visit uh, with Soviet officials. Now, the purpose of that visit was to secure financing for uh, what would be an, a new port in Hudaida, the uh, the western uh, port along the Red Sea, the Yemeni port, was newly constructed in the late 1950s. It was finished in 1961 by uh, Soviet engineers, was financed by the Soviets. All of the material came from ports in Odessa and basically come and and create this modern port in in Western uh, Yemen. And obviously, the Soviets had their own views uh, of creating a a naval base in in Hudaida. Uh, But uh, Muhammad al-Badr, as the crown prince, really thought that his own, or at least his own vision as misguided as it may have been, was that he would really create an Arab nationalist state uh, and saw himself as some kind of uh, Russian or Soviet uh, ally and genuinely thought that the Soviets were his friends. And this is actually what I argue with is in the book was that uh, in fact, this was most likely the case that uh, the Russians and the Egyptians would have supported Muhammad al-Badar. But as, events unfolded, it was al Badr himself who uh, was the target of these Yemeni nationalists. Uh, the Yemeni nationalist movement, the military, had shelled the palace and many, for months, thought that Muhammad al Badr was killed in the shelling in the palace. This resulted in both the Soviet Union and Egypt forsaking the ally that they both assumed had been killed in that initial assault and throwing their political and financial capital behind this new untested republic. So. All these plans had been made for several years beforehand, cultivating Muhammad al Badr to be the inheritor of this Soviet Arab nationalist state. And events on one precipitous evening on September 26, 1962, changed the world's calculations. Uh, and that was until they discovered he was alive two months later.
0: It's an important factor in another respect because it illustrates how it complicates the traditional bipolar narrative of a Cold War. Because as you explain, it creates a situation where you have the United States and the Soviet Union more or less working towards similar goals when it comes to the New Republic. So that's an interesting case where
1: the U.S. and the Soviet Union actually agreed not only in principle, but in practical matters, recognizing the same republic. Normally when we look at uh, Soviet and American ideologies during the Cold War, uh, and this is made uh, well known by Od Arn S. Westad and his book on the Global Cold War, that uh, ideologically divided the world in between these Soviet and American ideologies. So the way that, that uh, it was perceived was that uh, the Soviets supported these new nationalist groups and new revolutionary groups, while the Americans were a little bit more backwards and supported those anti-communist authoritarian regimes. And classically, uh, it was assumed that uh, the Saudi kingdom support was supported by the, the United States because it was anti-communist and because it was authoritarian, and that was what was U.S. grand strategy at the time, versus Egypt and Gamal Abdel Nasser. Who were these Arab nationalist revolutionaries, and they were allies with the Soviet Union. So, seeing these two juxtapositions, Yemen doesn't really fall into this category here. The way that that the the war unfolded is that the Saudis came out in support of the deposed Imam Muhammad al-Badr and his uh, tribal northern tribesmen, but the U.S. did not offer their support for those tribesmen, which was surprising at the time. Because if you you think about ideologically, that's really the way they should have gone. If the Saudis said we're supporting a group of tribal tribesmen, anti-communist tribesmen, uh, fighting the Egyptians and fighting the Soviets, presumably the U.S. would have fallen to that ideological category. But Yemen is surprising because both the Soviet Union and then later the United States recognized the new republic, this new untested republic, uh, and it was both recognized by the United States and the Soviet Union. So. This is yes, it is very surprising in in a Cold War sense, but that's because we're we're still looking at um, in, in, in in history during the 1960s through these Cold War lenses, as you look at everything through this bipolar Cold War lens. But if you look beneath that surface, you see that really the, the, um, there were two factors that uh, that that brought about this uh, coalescence of U.S. and Soviet Union and Soviet. Foreign policy, and that was one. It was. It's very difficult to support a, uh, a a tribal authority that was seen as some of the one of the most backwards tribal authorities in the world, tr- backwards authoritarian regimes, in terms of public policy and in terms of uh, the way that that the world would see public opinion. This is definitely not a popular opinion or popular foreign policy stance. That's number one. And really, number two, by the time, obviously, the Soviet Union recognized the republic within days. They had assumed their ally, the Red Prince, had been killed in the shelling on Sana'a. Um, but by the time they realized that he was alive, it was already too late. They had already thrown their capital behind the republic. The United States, on the other hand, waited from September uh, 26, 1962, until December 16th, uh, at which point John F. Kennedy recognized the republic. And this was meant is either a peace offering to the Egyptians, or in all practicality, it didn't really seem that the tribesmen, these northern tribesmen allied with the deposed Imam, had any chance of taking back the capital of Sana'a from the Republic and what would later be 70,000 Egyptian troops stationed uh, in Sana'a around the capital. So this was obviously a, it it wasn't going to be a clear victory in any event. And it was much easier from the perspective of the United States to recognize a a power that they could understand and that actually had a chance of holding on to the country. So, you know, yes, it is surprising ideologically in some ways. But if you actually look at the facts on the ground, the U.S. decision and the Soviet decision by extension is not that surprising.
0: You've been referring to the Egyptian intervention. I was wondering if you could uh, backtrack a bit and explain what it was that led – Egypt intervene? Because of all the international uh, uh, actors that uh, are involved in the Yemen Civil War in the 1960s, they really loomed the largest. And their role really does do a lot to determine uh, a lot of the events in the war itself. What led them to play such a large role, and what was their, what was their intent?
1: So I think to understand Gamal Abdel Nasser, it's important to take a uh, a backtrack from a couple of years before the yemen crisis breaks out in september of 1962 and uh, egypt had founded in 1958 this alliance with syria and uh, was known as the united arab republic yemen under imam ahmad uh, joined at some point and then broke off relations with egypt uh, in 1961 when syria backed out of the alliance uh, but yet uh, Nasser and Egypt still referred to Egypt, not as Egypt itself, but as the United Arab Republic, even after there was only one country left in the United Republic. Now, this was a big embarrassment to Nasser, who, uh, especially after the 1956 Suez War, uh, where even though Egypt lost territory and lost the battle itself, was seen as the victor against Britain, France, and Israel. This was a great achievement for the Egyptian leader. Uh, but yet, entering the 1960s Nasser was uh, looking for that next victory, the foreign policy victory that would give him that popularity that he needed in the streets. Nasser was built uh, he built a populist movement, and populist movements are contingent upon the continued success and uh, the barn- this garnishing of, of an image abroad of Uh, of a real Arab revolutionary. Now, the the breakup of the Egyptian-Syrian alliance was one of these uh, blows to Nasser and his Nasserist image and movement. Uh, So that is a long uh, story, but made short, is is the background to this 1962 revolution in Yemen. So September 1962, Nasser thinks that he has uh, an ally in Muhammad al-Badr. Nasser assumes that ally is killed, and the right... People within the Yemeni revolutionary camp come to Cairo and present a new republic, a silver platter for Nasser. And uh, Abdul Rahman al-Baydani, who is the central character who comes to Cairo, was a half Yemeni, half Egyptian, and he was also uh, married to uh, the the daughter of of Anwar sadat at the time the vice president, so he had a familial connection to Nasser's government, so he comes in, Abdul Rahman al-Baydani. And he basically promises Nasser this, this republic. Now, Nasser obviously didn't clearly understand Yemeni tribal politics and that this, uh, th- this republic didn't have any legitimacy per se. It was really an urban movement by a very small minority of the, of the populace. And without foreign intervention, this republic would not have, lasted, not have lasted more than a few months, especially after Imam Muhammad al Bada was discovered alive. So this uh, Revolutionary Council, Yemeni Revolutionary Council, understood that in order to succeed where other Yemeni revolutions have failed, it's essential to have Egyptian support or to have any foreign support. Uh, And once Nasser was duped into supporting this Yemeni Republic, because again, Nasser was desperate for foreign policy success at the time. Uh, Uh, It was it was similar. He called Egypt his uh, sorry. He called Nasser called Yemen his Vietnam, meaning once you start investing political, military and financial capital into uh, a quagmire, it's impossible to pull out without losing your credibility, both domestically and internationally. So Nasser kept pouring additional troops into Yemen, knowing very well that it was an unwinnable war for all intents and purposes. Uh, and I can go into the additional military uh, uh, difficulties um, afterwards if you're interested.
0: Oh, please do. I, I, in particular, how did the war unfold in the first uh, couple of years and and, and develop into the, uh, the, for lack of a better word, the quagmire that it that it became for Nasser?
1: So uh, Egypt's army uh, and military now, this is a military that's uh, received heavy investment from the Soviet Union, so the, uh, you can imagine that it's a real mechanized army with uh, tanks, armored vehicles, uh, new, uh, new airplanes which will come in uh, later in the story, but uh, a highly, highly mechanized army that is uh, great for desert warfare. Now, that's what the Egyptian army was built for. It was built for war with Israel, and the Sinai Peninsula is essentially flat ground. Yes, there are mountains, but uh, this is desert warfare, and desert warfare is fought with tanks and armored vehicles. And this is what the Egyptian army was trained for. When the Egyptian army, the first battalion, shows up in, in Yemen, it's as if to their surprise they find out that Yemen has mountains. And, and this was a shock to the military uh, elite of, of the Egyptians, not because they didn't realize that it had mountains, but because the extent to which Yemen's mountains, uh, mountainous terrain is, is completely inhospitable to a mechanized army. Only became apparent to them within the first uh, few months of the of the war, at which point they realized that there are no roads to get to the main areas of conflict. Uh, the, the roads are impassable. Yemen's northern highlands have the, one of the most inhospitable terrains in uh, in the world. I think, uh, relative, you know, comparatively speaking, to uh, Afghanistan's Khyber Pass, uh, Yemen's northern highlands have defeated uh, empires and invading armies all the way back to the Romans and the and the Ottomans and many other armies in between. So uh, this is a very difficult terrain, not suitable to a mechanized army. So this was the first shock to the Egyptians, which very quickly needed to change their entire thinking of how do we approach uh, this kind of territory. That was the the first main issue that the Egyptians faced. The second main issue uh, was the fact that uh, very quickly the tribal army, which knew the terrain far better than the Egyptians, Used an extensive network of caves that uh, pockmarked the entire northern highlands of Yemen to both store their munitions and to hide out during what, uh, during both artillery shellmen, uh, bombardment, and uh, aerial bombing campaigns that would occur afterwards. Uh, so this, these were the two main issues that, that faced uh, the Egyptians when they first set out on this military campaign. And very quickly, the Egyptians had to move from a a mechanized army to a military tactic, uh, military tactics that relied very heavily on overwhelming artillery superiority and aerial bombardment. That was the only way the Egyptians could move forward. And that's their entire offensive capabilities relied heavily, especially in the first two years on air superiority because the Yemenis had no Uh, planes, uh, on the one hand, and this overwhelming artillery force. The problem is to move artillery uh, requires ground troops, and it's very difficult to move artillery. That created issues. Uh, And then, uh, finally, uh, with these caves, it's very difficult to target. Uh, These are the best natural bunkers anywhere in the world. So here, the Egyptian army flies these uh, planes over, bombs some area where they think that the the tribesmen are are, uh, are camping out, but really the tribesmen are inside these caves and completely impenetrable to the Egyptian aerial bombardment. So, this basically creates a stalemate where the Egyptians have this artillery force within what was called a strategic triangle, which included the western port city of Hudaida, the central capital of Sana'a, and the southern commercial capital of Taiz, which forms a triangle. Within this triangle, the Egyptians held complete sovereignty because they had their, uh, their overwhelming artillery all around the, around the border. But outside of this strategic triangle, the Egyptian military was very limited, and, and this was what uh, the high, um, uh, the Egyptian Nasser, uh, and Field Marshal Amr realized very quickly that the Egyptians could not end this war in any offensive capability, despite numerous attempts. So this is really where they found themselves, in this defensive strategic triangle, with no clear way of venturing far beyond it.
0: One of the points you make in your book about the army during this period was that a lot of very important political actors in in, in Egyptian politics uh, rotate through. You, you mentioned that, uh, Sadat was important, was involved in the planning. You mentioned that, uh, Mubarak, who becomes Sadat's successor, he also, uh, is, uh, prominent. Basically, uh, a lot of major Egyptian, uh, military and political figures, uh, become, uh, become heavily involved in the war and, and basically sort of go there and have the box checked or, or play a role. So it really ha- has a role in, in Egyptian history that, Belies its sort of understated uh presence in the international memory
1: you know i I often uh, Nasser was correct in comparing Yemen to his Vietnam because a lot of uh a lot of Egyptian policy in Yemen mirrored American policy in Vietnam. It was a very similar kind of war. The Vietnamese also used those kinds of cave networks to to dodge American artillery and aerial power. Uh, but it wasn't only the the military similarities, but it was also what happened then afterwards and Very often politicians uh especially years after the uh, the war were judged based on their uh, military performance in that war uh, that came up with with uh, with John Kerry and uh, many others in between uh and, and John McCain who uh, came to to political power after uh, returning as a prisoner of war from vietnam so Vietnam factors into uh, American thinking in a very similar way is what was your performance during the Vietnam War you come in and that's one way to political power but uh, in Egypt this was exacerbated because the military in Egypt was both the central political power within the country and was also the central uh, economic power within the country the military especially after 1973 in the Yom Kippur War and the subsequent peace with Israel there's no other wars for the Egyptians to fight, uh, the Egyptian military to fight. So the Egyptian military ends up becoming this uh, large, massive state infrastructure that controls all aspects of this nationalized economy. So with, with that in mind, you basically take uh, Yemen was, was the, uh, the stamp. Uh, th- this was the, the basic training for an entire generation of, of Egyptians. Uh, there were so many tens of thousands of Egyptians who made their way through Yemen. That basically anybody who survived uh, came back as is some kind of uh, triumphant figure. Now that that's even though Yemen was a failure, but Egyptian media played Yemen up as a success, and and in many ways it was uh, for the Egyptians. Uh, even though they they lost many lives and and treasury and it was a disaster, but uh, here you have these Egyptians who are coming back and and they're they're labeled as heroes. They're going to fight for Egyptian nationalism abroad. Just number one, and then there was also the other case of. Uh, Rising up through the military—that's uh, if the military controls the politics and controls the economy by rising up through the military ranks. You're uh, by in essence rising up through Egyptian social hierarchy. Uh, and there was also a second uh, bit to it: was that uh, the import tax, uh, the excise and an import tax in Egypt was extremely, extremely high. But the Egyptians were able to get these import-free goods from uh, South Yemen, where the the British still had a colony, they were able to get these uh, modern uh, household goods, refrigerators, ovens, and then have them shipped from uh, Yemen after they returned uh, back to Egypt. So here you have a whole generation of of, uh, military brass who are coming back with all the luxury items of a Western household, but they get them tax-free and on the black market in Yemen, and then come back with them. So this is an added benefit. There's also another reason why a lot of Egyptians wanted to go out to Yemen, because they saw the financial benefits of coming back.
0: Egypt was the dominant international player, but as you explained, they weren't the only one. Uh, The the, uh, royalists were being supported by the Saudis. You also described, though, this very interesting role played by the United Nations. And as you explain, it's a role that has received far more uh, derision and criticism than it really deserved. Now, if you open up any history textbook or
1: any account, historical account of U.S. U.N. peacekeeping, the U.N. Yemen Observer Mission, which uh, began uh, in the summer of 1963 and lasted until September of 1964, uh, this U.N. Yemen Observer Mission known as UNYAM is Dismissed is a complete and utter failure. And uh, to understand the background of this, uh, you have to begin first with, with Kennedy's recognition of the, uh, the Yemeni Republic. So the Yemen Arab Republic is recognized by, by John F. Kennedy under the assumption that this will be the first step towards an Egyptian withdrawal from, from Yemen. Uh, and a number of uh, peacekeeping uh, diplomatic missions go back and forth the famed American diplomat Ellsworth Bunker, who, was, uh, he, who famed uh, shuttle diplomacy, flew multiple times between Cairo and Riyadh, and talked with both uh, King Saud, King Faisal later, uh, and then uh, Gamal Abdel Lasser, and trying to work out some kind of Saudi-Egyptian withdrawal from, from Yemen. And then Ralph Bunke, who came afterwards, uh, is the fam- famous UN diplomat. Uh, also came in and had similar meetings in Cairo and Riyadh and eventually some kind of agreement was worked out where there would be a mutual withdrawal of, uh, of Egyptian and Saudi interests in Yemen. The Egyptians would have some kind of military withdrawal and the Saudis would withdraw their support for the tribal armies in the North. And the Saudis were financing, uh, the tribal armies with the North and also providing a safe haven for them across the border. So, uh, this was the agreement that was worked out, and there was an observer mission that was put together to oversee these withdrawals. So there was an observer, uh, it was a number of uh, Yugoslav uh, soldiers that were put along this 20-square-kilometer uh, border between Saudi Arabia and Yemen to make sure the Saudis didn't uh, bring any more munitions into Yemen. And then there were a number of observers and uh, UN personnel in Saman and Hudaida to oversee in some ways this Egyptian withdrawal from from Yemen. Uh, now, the Egyptian withdrawal never happened. And in fact, by September of 1964, there were far more Egyptian troops in Yemen than there were prior to the mission. And uh, it was clear that no matter how many Yugoslavs uh, personnel you put on the ground, uh, or in, in many cases there were also just Canadian Otter aircraft flying over this border, there was no way to really stop this uh, porous border from uh, having allowing the Saudis to transmit munitions and money to the Ups, uh, up in the north, so here you know, it's, um this mission was was set up in, in some ways to, to be a failure from the beginning. but what I argue in the book is that uh, this mission uh, needs to be reevaluated and uh, what I did was I went back to the u n archives. Uh, and then also to the Royal Canadian Air Force archives, the Royal Canadian Air Force was running these observer flights over the border. And what I found uh, was that the Anya mission, rather than a failure, was actually somewhat of a success. Uh, and to understand this background, uh, to also understand what was happening with UN peacekeeping at the time, uh, uh, the, the prior, prior to the, uh, the Yemen mission, it was a peacekeeping mission in, in Congo. Uh, In 1961, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the UN Secretary General, was killed uh, in suspicious circumstances when his flight crashed over Congo on the way to Congo and the way back. Uh, And so it crashes, and uh, this was a symbolic failure of, of this Congo peacekeeping mission. And part of the reason was the cost overruns. It was costing a tremendous amount to keep a large peacekeeping force uh, in Congo to oversee uh, to keep the peace between the various factions within the civil war, and Dag Hammarskjöld was seen as this last uh, of uh, the the old European guard of of the United Nations, uh, and a lot of uh, people, including uh, including Carl von Horn, who is the head of the UN Yemen Observer Mission, uh, saw Dag Hammarskjöld's death as uh, and end, the end of, of a long uh, European hege- uh, hegemony over uh, international peacekeeping and over the UN in general. And in Dag Hammarskjöld's place came Utant, uh, who did not fit that, that same kind of image of, of the Swedish uh, Dag Hammarskjöld. And Karl von Horn and many others took this with a great deal of resentment. Uh, and Karl von Horn then wrote his uh, his own biography, which was the the definitive history of uh, of the Yemen mission uh, in which he said this was a, a mission was a failure because it didn't oversee the end, uh, didn't see the end of the Yemen conflict, it continued for three years afterwards, or more than three years afterwards. And Carl uh, von Horn also says that uh, there was a, a shortage of supplies, uh, his personnel was starving, they didn't have enough uh, food, they didn't have enough water, uh, all these complaints that he put back and forth, and they didn't have contact with the royalists, with the, with the uh, tribesmen who were allied to the um, deposed the imam up north because uh, the u n only recognized the republic and didn 't recognize the loyalists. and I looked at this and I, I looked back and, uh, and saw a few things that were that were missing here. First of all, uh, the mission was intended to observe the withdrawal of egypt and Yemen, uh, and Saudi Arabia from Yemen. The fact that this withdrawal didn 't happen is not necessarily the fault of the observer mission but of the very tenets that were put up by, uh, by the two diplomatic missions. Uh, and not only was, was it not a, a failure, but in 1967, in September of 1967, when Egypt and Saudi Arabia actually did withdraw from Yemen, the language of the Khartoum Agreement in 1967, the withdrawal agreement, is very similar to that agreement upon which this Yemen mission was based. So that's number one, to dispel that, that initial uh, dismissal of, of Anyam as a failure. Second of all, was the uh, contact with the tribesmen up north. And I found many instances of contact between UN personnel and uh, tribesmen up north. Uh, the only caveat was this wasn't official contact. Various different captains and UN personnel went to the tribal areas to discuss what it meant to be a peacekeeping mission in order to recognize the blue helmet. Uh, other matters of, of maybe um, a prisoner exchange and other issues. So there were obviously, there was direct contact with the tribesmen and this was a misnomer. And finally, it was the issue of uh, not having enough food and, and starving personnel and uh, uh, under-equipped personnel. So I, when I went into the archives in the UN and then uh, later in the Canadian archives, looking for these memos, writing home or writing to Geneva or writing to New York, asking for desperate supplies of, of water and food because our personnel is starving. I didn't find any record of starving personnel within the memos sent back and forth. In fact, the only memos sent back and forth were requests for uh, Tuber beer, uh, for uh, cognac, especially Remy Martin cognac, uh, for cigarettes. And it was great Border in Yemen. This may have been the issue that, uh, that, that plagued most of them. And uh, They asked for movies and newspapers and projectors. There was not a single mention of, of any dearth of, of supplies. I think the greatest emphasis to the fact was that the Royal Canadian Air Force, I saw a a box filled with hundreds of memos coming from the Royal Canadian Air Force pilots who were in Yemen, sent back to uh, both New York City and then to Toronto. And uh, these, uh, and, and I'm sorry, not to Toronto, to Ottawa. And these memos, hundreds of memos, I saw this must be desperation for lack of resources but really, these were hundreds of memos asking for the score of the Toronto Maple Leafs game. They were playing the <laughs> Montreal Canadiens at the time, and uh, Gordie Howe was, was playing It there was a lot of excitement around the game, uh, and they were playing this playoff series, so there were uh, constant requests for updates in the score. So there were no memos going back and forth about shortage of food. Uh, but uh, the, the Canadiens had it right. The what they were really concerned about was hockey. Uh, but this was another misnomer in that Carl Von Horn's take and his interpretation of the mission, which is the first in what would later be termed uh, tin cup peacekeeping, meaning peacekeeping on the cheap. They were trying to keep the cost down in Yemen because of the cost overruns in Congo. This clouded Von Horn's interpretation of what was happening in Yemen, uh, and in turn clouded our historical view of what, in essence, was a successful observer mission. Uh, And rather than a failure, was the basis for the eventual peace in Yemen in September of 1967.
0: At the core of that dispute seems to be the fact that the Egyptians simply didn't leave. And you go on to describe how Nasser was managing the situation. You describe how the Egyptians would conduct an offensive, they would make gains, he would try to lock them in with some sort of peace agreement. In that time, the royalists would retake that territory, and then all of a sudden, the the, the peace effort went away. And as you describe, as the war goes on, it gets uh, not the Egyptians begin to uh, adopt some increasingly uh, brutal weaponry, is specifically chemical weapons. I was wondering if you could explain how the Egyptians tried to work their way out of the war, and how it begins to also affect uh, the situation with regard to Israel.
1: So, uh, Nasser, uh, still sitting, uh, him and at least his Egyptian army, still sitting comfortably in the strategic triangle, which, was, which uh, while the Egyptians were there, was practically impenetrable to any tribal attacks. Uh, and the few attacks that happened were minimal and usually repulsed. Uh, so, uh, Nasser uh, attempted on multiple occasions, there were two main offenses. One was in the beginning of 1963, called the Ramadan Offensive. And the other was as the U.N. mission was uh, withdrawing or as it was coming to an end, was the Harad Offensive in the summer of 1964. Both of these offenses were ground defenses, traditional ground defenses, in an attempt to, uh, with the Ramadan offense, uh, first to uh, capture the northern city of Sada and cut off the supply lines to the tribal armies from Saudi Arabia. Uh, That was only a partial success and uh, the same tribal armies that escaped over to the caves came back and retook that same territory Which caused Nasser to back out of of any kind of peace agreements Uh, The same thing happened in the summer of 1964 in the Harat offensive where uh, Nasser attempted to capture Muhammad al-Badr under the assumption that if he captured the Imam the war would be over Uh, the offensive failed to capture al-Badr uh, and eventually petered out as the the territory was was reconquered uh, and again Nasser uh, refused to withdraw the Egyptian troops but uh, both Nasser and his Egyptian military commanders realized that the the victory was untenable so uh, already beginning in 1963 there were first experimentations with the use of tear gas uh, in a weaponized format so what the Egyptians uh, scientists had done is they added uh, ad hoc these these old British grenades of tear gas, put them onto these missiles, and then dropped the missiles in various uh, strategic locations. Uh, That was just the experimentation in 1963. Uh, But it wasn't until January of 1967 in a small village of Kitaf where uh, evidence of Egypt's use of mustard and phosgene gas first emerged. The Egyptians used the gas as a replacement for the number of troops that they had in in Egypt. It was unsustainable to keep 70,000 troops. But as long as the Egyptian army could forestall this tribal offensive that they were expecting on the uh, the strategic triangle, uh, then they can continue to hold out in Yemen. This was something uh, called the the long-breath strategy, uh, where Nasser held out in, in Yemen in the hopes that the British would withdraw from Uh, the southern port of of Aden and the Egyptians could take uh, control over all of South Arabia. Uh, This was at least the plan. So here the use of Egyptian chemical weapons uh, really starts in earnest in January of 1967. These weapons were initially aimed at uh, the largest cave networks. Most of them were headquarters of various tribal commanders but the caves were abutted to villages, Yemeni villages along the way. Uh, and with a shift in wind, rather than go into the cave and flush the people, the tribesmen out of the cave network, uh, the mustard and phosgene gas would waft over to one of the villages and there would be some civilian casualties. So this initially garnered uh, some, some muted uh, response, mostly from British colonial authorities, uh, initially the Saudis a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, uh, this was the first use of chemical weapons since major use of chemical weapons in military settings since World War One. There were a few in between, but this was the first major documented use. And the international community was entirely silent upon this. The United States had their own excuses that uh, the uh, U.S. officials said that, well, the, the Americans were using similar tactics in Vietnam. They were using herbicides and tear gas in similar fashion to flush the, the Vietnamese out of their northern, uh, their northern cave network. Uh, and felt that it would be hypocritical to criticize Egypt on very similar tactics. British authorities, especially after 1966, were hesitant to criticize Egypt, fearing that the world would label them or, or call them imperialists, despite the fact that the British Empire was still imperialist, but there was always an image crisis, especially with, the, uh, with Harold Wilson's liberal government. Uh, so here the U.S. and, and, and the British were the, probably should have been the ones to take the lead on this, Backed out. Uh, the United Nations was completely inept in order and um, not suitable to to criticize Egypt's use of chemical weapons, because the Soviet Union would have vetoed any movement within the Security Council to criticize Egypt, who was their staunch ally. Uh, similarly,
0: you, you, you uh, mentioned also the uh, sorry to interject. But yeah, you go. also mentioned that, that the British uh, were were compromised by the by by what happened with Suez and how that had really. Uh, given a lot of, of people in Britain a sour taste, you had a lot of people who still had a, uh, a, a particularly uh, on, on the conservative right, who had this vendetta against Nasser, and, and so they, they were hardly impartial actors in this whole in this in this whole uh, uh, situation. And and you explain how that drove a lot of how the British were trying to respond to this. And of course that that, that group loses a lot of, uh, of influence over time, especially after uh, the Labour government steps in and you have a different perspective on what Britain's role in the world should be.
1: Right, exactly. This is the withdrawal um, of, of all territory east of Suez. Uh, and, and this happens in earnest by the end of 1966. And you know, it's the great irony that uh, both both the British Empire and uh, Egypt's troops withdraw from South Arabia within several weeks of each other, <laughs> both in these ignominious uh, defeats and uh, it's, it's no coincidence that uh, in 1839 when the British first came to, uh, to Yemen and, and conquered uh, uh, the, the port of Aden, it was in the face of uh, Muhammad Ali and his Egyptian army at the time and this great historical irony that uh, over 100, uh, 150 years later um, less than 150 years later, here you have the uh, Egyptians and the British again at it in the same exact corner of South Arabia, and both of their uh, colonial efforts are essentially met with defeat. So this is you know, part of a historical irony, but it's, it's underlying the, the fact that the Yemen played a central role for 140 years of, of history in, uh, in, in the Middle East, and it, play, it continues to play an essential role. Uh, and, and but yes that, that does hamstring uh, it, it limits the, the British ability to actually take a, a concerted stance because they're still trying to hold on to the port of Aden uh, and with the labor government coming in uh, they're, they're trying to withdraw from, from their colonial territories uh, and that, that introduces this, this small group of, uh, of British mercenaries former soldiers in the SAS uh, who are now financed by the Saudis and helping this Yemeni Tribal militia, The northern tribal militia to, to fight the Egyptians uh, under some old colonial pretext that this is revenge for Suez of 1956. Uh, but they play a very important role in determining actually what happens afterwards because here the world is basically ignoring, uh, ignoring the, the use of chemical weapons in, in Yemen. And again, the similarities between what happened in Yemen during the 60s and Syria today are, are self-evident. Uh, and in fact, history is repeating itself in many ways. Uh, but the British played an important role, and for the following reason. So uh, the mountains were uh, were an impediment to the Egyptian army, just the same as they were an impediment to the supply networks of the, uh, the royalist uh, tribal armies in the north. And in order to get supplies and munitions to these uh, small groups of tribesmen fighting the Egyptian mechanist army, uh, the British mercenaries who were overseeing the tribal guerrilla effort needed some kind of airlift uh, and some air force. But uh, obviously no, none of the countries were going to give any kind of official uh, help to this small group of, uh, of tribesmen. Uh, it was too politically costly and also very difficult to, to manage practically. So the British mercenaries turned to the Israelis in May of 1964 before then. Uh, and ask the Israelis who were, um, aside from this group of British mercenaries, who were probably Egypt's greatest enemy, and who would have gained the most from seeing Egypt's army tied up in Yemen. And uh, in this uh, two-year clandestine operation, there are 14 missions between Israel and uh, Yemen with uh, these military flights uh, flying from, from Israel to uh, the, the Yemeni tribes and bring the much-needed military uh, equipment. Now, they were specifically targeted towards areas uh, that were in the midst of, of particularly heavy fighting, and in fact, may have prolonged uh, the tribal ability to uh, to prolong the war against uh, against Egypt. And yeah, it's the great irony. This is a wonderful story where uh, Imam Muhammad al-Badr gathers all of his uh, local tribal sheiks and tells them that I'm going to show you that Allah is even on my side. So he gathers them all around the mountaintop. And at the agreed-upon moment uh, in the middle of the night, there's uh, a roar of an engine. The imam lifts his arms up to the sky and down fall 14 packages with munitions. And all of the tribesmen and sheikhs say, look, even Allah is on the imam's side, but little do they know it was the Israelis who were flying the munitions over. <laughs> uh, so, you know, again, it's a, one, one of the fun stories. But what happened in the end, so the Israelis had a front and center view uh, clandestinely to the use of uh, Egypt's um, use of chemical weapons. Uh, and this was one of the drivers towards the June 1967 war with these uh, Israeli decision makers uh, at the time up. Uh, Levi Eshkol, who had a front and center view of this as well, and in addition to uh, to Weizmann, who was the head of the Air Force and others, and the Israeli uh, political establishment saw the use of chemical weapons and said, and feared out loud that this would happen on uh, one of the cities that the Egyptians would drop chemical weapons on Tel Aviv, there's, there's this momentous meeting in May of 1967 of the, um, the teachers' union in Tel Aviv where they discuss what do we do when the air raid siren goes off? Do we take the kids down to the bunker fearing that it's a traditional uh, bombardment or do we take them up to the roof out of concern that there's chemical weapons being dropped? So This was obviously a serious concern and the only delivery method the Egyptians had at the time were their, was their air force. So the uh, the decision was made to uh, preemptively strike the Air Force in order to eliminate that fear of chemical weapons in the June 1967 war. So Nasser's calculations to use those weapons in order to forestall a, a tribal offensive uh, were also in um, invariably what led to the June
0: 1967 war uh, as well. With Egypt's withdrawal and the... Uh, disengagement of a lot of other uh, actors how does the Civil War come to an end so the Civil War came to an end is that uh,
1: Pavel who who is the Soviet correspondent for the the Pravda newspaper said it best that in uh, uh, there was a, a siege on the capital city of Sana. the Egyptians leave and as soon as the Egyptians leave the strategic triangle is vulnerable, and the uh, tribal armies come and lay siege upon the capital city of Sana'a. And it's through um, some fate of circumstance and some uh, Soviet airlifts that the uh, republic survives, and the tribal siege in Sana'a is lifted. But it's after all of these powers, the Soviets leave, the Egyptians leave, the Saudis leave, that Pavlov Domchenko says, you know what, all this time we thought that Yemen was, uh, the conflict in Yemen was part of the Cold War, we thought it was part of the Arab Cold War, only now do we realize that Yemen, what was the Yemen Civil War, was nothing more than a centuries-old way of regime change in Yemen. But we realized it too late. So that's essentially what happened. The, the siege in Sana'a is lifted. Uh, the republic emerges victorious. And by 1970, Imam Muhammad al-Bardar is in exile in, uh, in the UK. And uh, there's a compromise government that emerges. So the war ends when all the international powers leave essentially leaving Yemenis to themselves to conduct that centuries-old
0: method of regime change. You published this book in the midst of another civil war that's taking place in Yemen today. And I was wondering if you could explain what the war in the 1960s, uh, what light the war in the 1960s sheds upon uh, what's going on today and what lessons we can take from the war in the 1960s to better understand what's going on in Yemen and, and in the region today.
1: So the Republic that today is no more than a few rooms in, uh, in Riyadh, the Yemeni Republic, is essentially overthrown by this Houthi tribal militia of the Northern tribesmen who come to Sun on 2014 and overthrow the Republic. Uh, now, this republic was founded in, in, in its um, in its core in September of 1962, and over the years has, has degraded as the uh, this generation of revolutionaries has has died off, and eventually been left with uh, with with, with uh, very little public legitimacy, and, and in its came the same tribesmen who were deposed uh, and who fought on the other side of the losing side of the civil war during the 1960s. These same northern tribesmen are part of the Houthi movement that has retaken the capital city of Sana'a. So if you look at it uh, from a historical perspective, the war in Yemen right now did not start in 2014, but rather started in September of 1962. That civil war started then and is only culminating now with that final siege on Sana'a. And the republic that was founded in 1962 uh, is now been defeated by those same northern tribesmen, and uh, essentially, the, uh, Yemen has reverted back to what it was prior to 1962 under uh, the rule of the Imams. Now, that's in a very simplistic way. There's obviously uh, other factors uh, that, the, in terms of the Saudis. The Saudis have always intervened when there's a threat on their southern border. The Saudis intervened in 1960s because there was a threat on their southern border by the Egyptian troops. And the Saudis intervened today because those same tribesmen are threatening Saudi sovereignty. So it's, it's essentially the closed circle of a revolution and a civil war that began in
0: 1962. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? So
1: right now, I'm uh, working specifically on the history of chemical warfare in the Middle East. I started with this topic uh, because of the 1960s in in Yemen and because of this episode that received very little international attention at the time and very little historical analysis afterwards. Uh, But the connection between Egypt and its use of chemical weapons in Yemen and the current use in Syria and previous use in Iraq is linear, in that after the success of Egypt's use of chemical weapons and the lack of international response, Uh, Egyptian scientists went both to Baghdad and Iraq and then to Syria where they sold chemical weapons and participated in uh, establishing chemical weapons industries in both Syria and Iraq. So both of those nascent chemical weapons industries trace their origins back to uh, the use of chemical weapons in Yemen in 1960s. So here you have that linear history, and I think that's a way to... Uh, better understand the use of chemical weapons in Syria is to look at it from as a story that starts during the 1960s and continues until 2017.
0: Sounds like a very interesting project. Well, Asher Orkaby, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you.